Okay, let's turn to Romans chapter 4, please. Romans chapter 4. Sorry I'm late. Just received a very edifying letter from a woman who was under the ministry 30 years ago and then wasn't. And she said the word grace made her look up my name on the Internet. And so she listened to the entire Better Call Paul series. And uh, apparently did a lot for her. So those kind of things are kind of floria. They're pretty good, good news. Romans chapter 4, verse 1. This is a continuation from really a strain of Romans that began back in the lesson number 61, which is, I guess, 15 messages or so ago. And it's about God-approved livingness in Romans 4. So we're on the left flank. And the subject is God-approved livingness in Romans chapter 4, which I found to be my most challenging chapter to study in Romans. So it's, it's exciting. God is giving a constellation of insights throughout Romans, but especially right here in Romans 4. So let's... The dialectic continues is also the second part. So before we open in prayer, I want to remind you or at least announce to you that the doctrine on the rich man and Lazarus, the three-part series, is in print, and it's on the information table for your advantage. And first of all, it's not completely edited. It's not editor-proof, therefore. Secondly, it's from a pastoral angle. It's what I had, my own personal thoughts on the subject, my own personal research on it. There are other better treatments of the subject from theologians. I believe Julie Ferwerda did a wonderful job on it in her book called Raising Hell. And But I wanted to do just what I had on it so far, so that's free for the taking. I think it's about 14 pages long, which is uncharacteristic for a doctrine. But it also, in the third part, my intention was to weave it back in with a seamless segue back into Romans. But it's more like a seamed segue. It's it's kind of an artificial return to Romans. But I hope it's edifying. And it's really not for distribution widespread. It's really for you to assimilate the truth of it yourself so that you can also tell others of the hope that's in you. Because people ask, what's the hope that's in you? What is the reason for your confidence? And they'll almost always say, what about the rich man and Lazarus? And you ought to have an answer. And I'm sure that this might just help a little bit. So, free for the taking. Thank you, Father, for this opportunity, and we're grateful for the connected constellation of insights that you're granting through the Holy Spirit in Romans so that we may read Romans with the light on. And that's the light that you are, for God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. God is love, and in him there is no condition at all. And we're so grateful that we're learning this. And, Father, we pray that you will allow us to gaze into the face of our Lord Jesus 
where we see the light of the knowledge of the glory of God and where we recognize that that light that shines in his face is the light that will one day shine throughout all the earth and all of created reality in all of its times. And what a hope this is. And may we have the grace to hold on to that hope by the grace of God. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. This is a continuation of Romans the Epistle back from 61, the strain in Lesson 61. So far we have this translation starting at verse 1. The teacher says, under the assumption of what Paul concluded in Romans 3.27, especially 3.28 also, and through 31, ending up with the Torah standing tall or the Torah standing as a purpose of the testimony of Messiah's faithfulness, Christ's faithfulness. What we're going to find out in Romans 4 and throughout is that Christ's faithfulness is a theme that resounds throughout this epistle, not just in the introductory parts or in a few parts, but it's the profound resonating theme throughout the result of which, I think, is evoking worship in us. So the teacher is asking essentially the question in verse 1, well then, if the Torah stands tall as a testimony of Messiah's faithfulness, which Paul said up above, then this is what he says in verse 1, then what shall we say about what Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, has obtained? The word is not found there or discovered, but obtained. And then he says, for since Abraham was justified by works, not if, but since. This is a fulfilled condition of the Greek conjunction E, E-I. So he says, for since Abraham was justified by works, and this is the assumption of this Jewish Christian missionary, he has something to boast about. That's really the heart of the matter. The boaster can only boast in the Lord, according to Jeremiah 9, 24. So the teacher is ready to argue here that Abraham was justified by circumcision, as seems to be the case from Genesis 17. Paul replies tersely here. He says, but this is not how God sees it. God doesn't see it that Abraham was justified by works and that he's obtained this justification by works, and that he has a right to boast. God doesn't see it this way. But what does the scripture say, Paul says? Abraham faithfully trusted God, and God considered this faithful trust or fidelity as rectitude, which is a one-word definition for God-approved livingness. What's going on here? The answer is what is going on here is not a debate about forensic justification. But one, three things really. One, and all of these begin with D, so it's a memory device. One, it's a dialectic about what constitutes the kind of livingness that God approves. Paul's gospel is att- was attacked as being something that does not lead people to a God-approved lifestyle or a livingness, as I like to call it, or a phrase borrowed from Jürgen Moltmann. 
And so this is, a, secondly, not only a dialectic about what constitutes the kind of, we'll say, way of being and doing, livingness, that God approves. Secondly, it's a defense of Paul's gospel. Remember in Philippians 1.16, he says, those who preach the gospel out of love know that I am appointed or destined for the defense of the gospel. So he's defending the gospel of God here, which has been attacked as being something that does not lead to rectitude. We know that all the way back from Romans 3.8. Some accuse us, Paul said, we are slanderously reported as saying, go out and do evil that good may come. And that's not at all what he's teaching, and he's defending the gospel against that attack. Third, it's a demolition. So it's a dialectic, which is a sort of rhetorical argument. It's a defense of Paul's gospel, and it's a demolition of this teacher's claim, this opposing missionary's claim, that observance of the law accomplishes God-approved livingness or a quality of life, a way of being and a way of doing and a way of knowing that God approves of. It does not. God-approved livingness continues to be described on the right flank, beginning with Romans 12, 1 through 2, going through Romans 13, 14, which I may hit that flank tomorrow night. So Paul describes a transformation there, as we've seen in Romans 12, 1 to 2, that occurs by the renewal of the mind, otherwise called a radical epistemological transformation. So that the community of saints that has undergone that transformation thinks and knows in terms of an altogether new reality. Like the Christian Jewish teachers in Galatia, however, the Christian Jewish teacher with whom Paul is in a dialectic of contradictories in Romans the Epistle says, that teacher says, that God approves of a livingness that results from observance of the law, beginning with circumcision for the males and beginning with dietary and calendrical laws, laws of the calendar for both males and females, which leads ultimately to a thorough observance of the law of Moses, and that this, according to them, even though Christ died for our sins, which they will say, this is how God approves of our livingness. This is the livingness that God approves of. The rationale and foundation for this is largely found in a misinterpretation on their part, of Leviticus chapter 18. Just look there for a moment because this becomes one of the firebrands for the debate in Galatians also. Leviticus 18.5 is really one of the heavy artillery weapons that these legalistic teachers, and I don't want to really say legalistic, but teachers who say that God approves of law observance as a way of living. And even that he justifies and rectifies people who observe the law. Now, I'm reading from the New English translation of the Septuagint version, and it reads this way. And you shall keep all my ordinances and all my judgments 
and you shall do them. For the things a person does, or as for the things a person does, he shall live by them. I am the Lord your God. Now, contrary to their interpretation of this, this does not say that if a person does the things commanded in the law, that he or she will gain life, specifically eternal life or the life of the coming age by them. But it simply says that if he does, not, he does them, that means that he lives by or in them. The person who elects to observe the law must live by all of them. He must live by the entire Mosaic law. He can't just pick and choose out of the 613 commandments of the Mosaic law. Eventually he's in. In for a penny, in for a pound, as the British say. He's not saying, nor was Jesus when he said to the rich young ruler, who said, what must I do to inherit the life of the coming age? And Jesus said, well, you know what the law says. Have you tried that out and found that it won't take you there? It's basically what he's saying. The guy goes, oh, yeah, I, I fulfilled all these things ever since I was a child. And Jesus said, well, then you're lacking something. You've got to sell all that you have because you're very attached to your land and possessions. Give it to the poor and come and follow me. What Jesus is doing there is helping this young man figure out that you cannot inherit the coming age. You cannot inherit the life of the coming age by the law or by any human action, however sacrificial or heroic. The way stood before him in person. To follow Jesus, therefore, is to end up crucified, buried, raised, and having the life of the age to come. So this does not say, God is not saying to Israel that if a person does these things, that he'll gain life, but simply that if he does them, he will have to live by them or in them. In other words, he finds his livingness in them, if you can call it that. A person who observes these things lives in the sphere of them. He finds or she finds his entire raison d'etre in this thing, in this law, in the keeping of it. But Christ is the end of the law for righteousness, says Romans 10.4. I'm just hinting at the big 10.4 that will be coming up in our future studies and already has come up. Christ is, not, is the end of the law for righteousness according to Romans 10.4. We're staying in Romans 4 here, but I'm wandering a bit. So the law does not promise the life of the age to come as a reward for observers of the law. It simply says that if you observe the law's ordinances and judgments, that will define your livingness. You will have your livingness, your way of being and doing will be within that sphere. It does not say that God approves of that livingness or that that's his final goal for them. So Leviticus 18.5 comes into play also, very strongly in Galatians, it's hard to read Romans without at least a gesture toward Galatians. And likewise, it's almost impossible to read Galatians without some form of 
nod toward Romans. As far as Galatians, a scholar named Martinus de Boer shows some clarity on this issue. This issue. I, wrote, I read recently where he wrote this from Galatians, about Galatians. He said, in Galatians, the proclamation of the crucified Christ, the cross, and you can confer with 1 Corinthians one eighteen. also, he says, is evidently an offense to Christian Jews, such as the new preachers active in Galatia. Because, so Paul claims, and listen carefully to this, it has brought about the end of the law as a reliable basis for righteousness and life. We could say for rectitude and livingness. The law, the cross of Christ, brought about an end, according to Paul. The end of the law as a reliable basis for righteousness in life. And the reason I think that that's important is because it helps to interpret Romans 10.4. Christ is the end of the law for righteousness. Which we would say, Christ is the end of the law as a reliable basis for rectitude, for livingness. This is all about what kind of life and livingness God approves. It's not about salvation here at all. God approved, well, I'll get to the thesis of it. It's very difficult to untangle these things. I've been on it for years, and I'm trying to do it in a couple nights. But So this impl- applies interpretively, interpretively to Romans 10.4. Christ is the end of the law as a reliable basis for righteousness in life, or we could say Christ is the end or the termination of the law as a reliable basis for divinely approved livingness. And then it goes on to say that tricky little phrase, for everyone who believes. A phrase also used in Romans 1.16, Romans 3.22. For everyone who believes. But the idea here is, for everyone who believes the good news that God justifies the ungodly by a pure and unadulterated grace because Christ died for them. To everyone who believes that, Christ is the end of the law as a means to attain rectitude because the rectitude now is a faith that's evoked by the gospel that works to a faithfulness that works by love, which is the rule that the Israel of God walks by in this dying phase of the evil age. The evil age is in its dying phase. The night is far spent. The evil age, which Jesus Christ came to rescue us from, in Galatians 1.4, is in its dying phase. Its death rattle is imminent. And it will come with the parousia of Christ, the eschaton. So Paul is talking about what kind of livingness God prescribes and approves of in this time, in your mortal bodies, in this dying phase of the evil age, in this clashing juncture of the old passe age and the new messianic age. 
And as Paul says in Romans 5, 5, our hope is not ashamed. That means God hasn't just given us a hope, which is a deferred consolation. Hang on, I'll be here someday. That's a deferred consolation. Hope's not ashamed because while we wait, the love of God is poured out into our hearts. And there's no greater blissfulness that you can have in this life than the knowledge of God's unconditional love for you from which you cannot be separated. And so it's not just a deferred consolation because the love of God is poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who is given to us. That's what Romans 5.5 5 says. We're moving there toward Romans 5.5. 5. So therefore, we could say Christ is the end of the law as a means to attain God-approved livingness. Therefore, Christ is the end of the law, in Romans 10.4, in two distinct senses or nuances. First, he's the fulfillment of the law. The end, telos, means fulfillment of the law. He's also a fulfillment of the prophets. Don't think that I've come to destroy the law. He could say, but rather to fulfill the law and the prophets. Matthew 5.17. He could also say, don't think that I've come to destroy the law. I've just come to end its reliable basis for approved, God-approved livingness. That's participation with me. God-approved livingness, Jesus says, is participation with me because without me you can't do anything. Without me, you can do nothing. So abide in me. Participate with me. Participate in my faithfulness. I'm crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. The life I now live in the flesh, in this mortal body, in the dying phase of the old age, I live by the faithfulness of the Son of God, or in the sphere of, or in participation with the faithfulness of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I don't frustrate the grace of God. For if rectification, rectitude, God-approved livingness comes by works, then Christ died for nothing. That's why Paul gets hot under the collar and hot everywhere else in Galatians, because the death of Jesus Christ is being rendered to no effect as far as the Galatian churches are concerned by these teachers. So don't get upset if I get upset about the hell doctrine, for example, and call it a blasphemous heresy because I'm mad at it. I'm compassionate for those who have that held over their heads. I don't have too much compassion for those that preach it to to oppress people with it at all. So then, Christ is the end of the law in two senses. First, he's the fulfillment of the law and the prophets in that A, the law and the prophets speak of him, and B, Jesus fulfilled the two commandments on which all of the law and the prophets depend. To love God with one's whole heart, mind, soul, and strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself. 
And so by this we can also see, for example, that the Good Samaritan is Jesus and that he loved his neighbor as himself. And his neighbor is all of humankind because he became flesh. So by this we can see the Good Samaritan as Jesus and interpret the parable universally. There's a, especially in Luke, the parables can be interpreted with a universal bent. The second nuance or sense in which Jesus fulfilled the law is not so much that he consummated or fulfilled it, but that he terminated it only as it's a means of rectitude, which is righteous livingness, or as a thing to follow with a view to attaining the life of the coming age, or the experience of that life in the present age. So two or four, everyone who believes in Romans 10, 4, again, means that everyone who believes the gospel of God about the supreme redemptive significance of his son, and not everybody believes that gospel who says they're a believer, but to everyone who believes, once again, means everyone who believes the gospel of God about the supreme redemptive significance of his son perceives that the law is not God's chosen means for God-approved livingness. This idea is also expressed in Galatians 2.15 and 16, where Paul, speaking as a Jew, speaks. You say, who is he speaking to? He's speaking with Peter in one sense, but he's also speaking to those teachers that are Jewish Christians that are misleading the Galatians. Look at Galatians 2.15 shortly, just for a moment, and stay in Romans 4. Stay in Romans 4. These are wanderings, but profitable wanderings. We aren't wandering around in the wilderness and not coming to a promised land here. We are coming to a promised land. On the other hand, as George Harrison said, if you don't know where you're going, any road can take you there. He says this, speaking as a Jew, we are Jews by birth, Paul says, little tongue-in-cheek, he says, and not so-called pagan sinners. We're not pagan. We're not sinners like the pagans. In other words, the distinction between the Jew and the pagan is the distinction between a God-favored person and a God-disapproved person. So he's speaking in a way that they'll understand, but he's doing it as a subtle slam. But then he says, we are Jews by birth, and not so-called pagan sinners. Yet we know, we know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but by the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. Please note that translation. Moreover, and this is right on the heels of him confronting Peter, Cephas, the rock, so-called, because he had withdrawn from table fellowship with the Gentiles, which Paul says is not walking according to the truth of the gospel. Under pressure from celebrities, under pressure from the religious heavyweights from Jerusalem who came down in an entourage to check things out in Antioch, Paul saw the pressure move Peter. The pressure of men moved Peter. Then he goes on to say, moreover, 
We believe in Messiah Jesus. That means we participate. He could, he's still talking here with Peter. We participate in Messiah's fidelity in order to be made upright or caused to have rectitude on account of the fidelity of Christ, meaning our, and our participation in him, and not on account of the works of the law, because on the basis of the works of the law, no flesh will be rectified. Literally, all flesh will not be rectified. So here, too, in Galatia, the issue at hand is the kind of livingness that God approves. When Peter withdrew from the table fellowship of the Gentiles, under pressure from Jewish leaders, religious leaders, Paul called that what it is. It is not walking straight according to the truth of the gospel. The truth of the gospel is demolished the walls between you and the Gentiles made of ordinances and food laws, and dietary feasts and the celebration of those things and circumcision. God approves of a livingness that walks straight with regard to the gospel, something Peter was not doing when he withdrew from table fellowship with pagan believers in Antioch. So God approved livingness in Galatians is a participation in Christ. Paul goes on to explain that in 2.20, same chapter. It's a participation in his own fidelity, which continues in the corporate Christ. The fidelity of Christ, he's the author and perfecter of faith wherever it's found. The fidelity of Christ to the extent of death by crucifixion is a fidelity that continues in the spirit of Christ, in the corporate Christ, his people. And that's God-approved livingness. It's a participation in his fidelity in the power of the spirit of the Son who was sent into our hearts, Paul says, crying, Daddy. Those who participate in Messiah's fidelity know that they are rectified by the fidelity of the Messiah. In other words, true faith in the gospel doesn't believe that one is justified by one's faith. True faith in the gospel is faith that one has justification by the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. So there's a twist there. And this will come into focus little by little. I have to drop eight or nine lenses before it's clear to you. The subject under debate, and I wish people would be get, get as excited about God-approved livingness and the doctrine around it than the doctrine around hell. For some reason, there's always much more attentiveness and much more excitement about finding out that the Bible doesn't talk about an endless hell. Now, it's pretty good news if you've been stuck in that all your life and terrorized by it and psychologically twisted by it, which millions have been. But we're talking here about the other leg of Romans here, a very important thing. How am I going to live in this life in a way that I can experience the pleasure of God in my life? Because there's enough grief to experience in this life. How can I live and experience what David called blissfulness? Blessedness, what Jesus called makarios, which is a blissful felicity, a kind of happiness 
in the soul that can't be taken away by external influences or even by pain, grief, or loss in this life. How am I going to live in such a way? Well, my living will have to be the act and the action of God in me because I can't do anything without him. That's what's called a faith that works by love. The subject under debate here in Romans 4 and throughout Romans, really from 1, 1 through 4.25 at least, is not justification by believing in Christ versus justification by doing the works of the law. That's not the debate. That's not the dialectic. It is rather about God-approved livingness by the works of the law versus by participation in Messiah's own fidelity. This is my son. In him I'm well pleased. He's well pleased with the son's faithfulness. So he's obviously well pleased with someone who's participating in it. Peter knows this. And that's why Paul says he stood condemned. He, he stood condemned. In other words, he was wrong because, not because he was ignorant, but because he knew very well. In fact, in the Council of Jerusalem, Peter bravely and famously said, we believe, after James wanted to lay this burden on some of the Gentiles, well, Okay, they don't need circumcision, but let's tell them to, to abstain from certain meats with the blood still in it, and let's let them do this and this. And, and Peter finally stood up and said, we believe, no, he said, Acts fifteen eleven. we believe that we, Jews, will be justified or saved, he says in that case, by the grace of our Lord Jesus, just as they are, the Galatians or the Gentiles, just as they are saved by the grace of the Lord Jesus, so are we saved by the grace of the Lord Jesus. No mention of faith. Faith is mentioned in Acts 15.9, just preceding that, as something that God does to purify the heart of the person that he justifies, purify the heart from boasting, for one thing. And as the conscience is purified from dead works to serve the living God as priests, faith is evoked in us to purify our heart from a lot of things. Most of all, the arrogance of boasting that brings us into a spiritual blindness and a personal psychological misery that we don't dare admit because we're Christians. So then, Peter knew this at the Council of Jerusalem. Peter stood condemned at Antioch precisely because he knew this. It's like somebody getting the doctrine of universal salvation, but then they're going to pull their approval of him or even pull his ordination if he doesn't comply with the old way. And he says, okay. I don't think so. How could a man continue to preach the gospel, teach and preach, if 
He chose loyalty over an affiliation over loyalty to the word of God and the Holy Spirit. I can't imagine that. I can't, I can't imagine it. We've all done things against our personal conscience, and it hurts like hell to do it. And we know that. That's God's grace. But I can't imagine what Peter was doing here was doing exactly what Paul condemned in Galatians 1.10. If I am a servant or slave of men, I'm no longer the slave or the servant of Christ. So when Peter stood up then in Jerusalem, he was brave. We believe we are saved by the grace of the Lord Jesus in the same way they are. And this agrees entirely with Romans 11.26, as Paul says that all Israel will be saved, even as all the Gentiles will have come into the state of salvation in Romans 11.25 and 26, entirely by the mercy that God intends to have on all through the faithfulness of one Israelite, Jesus Christ, who himself is the real Israel of God. Peter did not say, we believe, and this is where you see translations fiddle with the text to conform to a doctrine or a dogma or to a translation committee. It does not say, as some translations say, that Peter said in Acts 15, 11, we believe to be saved by the grace of the Lord Jesus. See the subtle, subtle twist there? He doesn't say we believe to be saved by the grace of the Lord Jesus. He said we believe we are saved by the grace of the Lord Jesus. Huge difference there. I don't trust any English translations at all. None of them. I don't trust any of them. None of them at all. I mean none of them. They're all lousy. There's some that are better than others. I like lately Holman Christian Standard Bible. It's better than others. But I don't trust any of them. I trust much more the Greek text, but you can't even go by the Greek text until you find out what the usage of the words were at the time, the semantic domain. There's a whole lot of study that has to go into that. A new translation should be forthcoming, I think. I pray for it. Somebody will do a translation of the Bible in which the universally saving significance of Jesus Christ is duly expressed. That's what God said through the mouth of all the prophets, I think. If I read Acts 3.21 in its plain sense, God spoke through the mouth of all the prophets from time immemorial. That means all the prophets without exception that he raised up in all the times when prophets spoke, they spoke of apocatastasis panton. And I thank God quite often for hilaria, hilaria, Ramelli, one of the greatest researchers of our time, and the book that she wrote on the Christian doctrine of apocatastasis still remains probably one of the top five highly treasured research books I've ever read. So Peter said, we believe we are saved by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ which is the same thing as saying we believe that we are saved by the faithfulness of the Lord Jesus Christ. His grace, therefore, is his self, 
giving love at the cross in 2 Corinthians 8, 9. For you know the grace of Christ, although he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that you might be rich through his poverty, the poverty of crucifixion. And Galatians 2.20, I live within the sphere of, and N.T. Wright got that right, I live within the sphere of the faithfulness of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So as Paul wrote in Ephesians 2.5, by grace you were saved to a passel of pagans that had become an addressable community through the hearing of the gospel. God evoked faith in a whole community of people in Ephesus and Laodicea and other places. And they just did, they said, what happened to us? Ephesians answers the question. By grace, you were, you were dead in trespasses and God made you alive in Christ. For by grace, you are saved. Ephesians 2.5. Then he says in 2.8, for by grace you were saved through faithfulness that is not of yourselves. Through faithfulness that is not of yourselves. It's the faithfulness of Christ. In Ephesians 2.8. It's the gift of God. So that no one can boast of their faith is what he's saying in 2.8. And then in 2.9 he says not of works. It's not of your faith and it's not of your works. It's the gift of God so that no one can boast. No one can boast of his faith. No one can boast of his works. By grace, you were saved and are continually being saved. And so, to everyone who believes in Romans 10.4, as in 1.16 and 3.22 has to do with the perceptivity of faith. What faith perceives. Faith in the gospel that announces the universally saving significance of Jesus Christ includes the understanding, for by faith we understand, says Hebrews 11.3. Faith in the universally saving significance of Jesus Christ includes the understanding that Christ himself makes any pursuit of rectitude by observance of the law to be a vain and futile quest. If rectitude came, or God-approved livingness, as I'm calling it for definition's sake, came by following the law, then Christ died for no reason. That's so tragic to believe that. He died in vain, listen carefully to this principle. Christ died in vain if the quest for rectitude or God-approved livingness by the law was not in vain. If that quest to be rectified and brought into an approved livingness was by the law, then Christ died for nothing. So in Romans 4, in an exegesis, Paul's doing an exegesis here of Genesis chapters 12 through 22. He's summing up the history of Abraham there. Abraham's faithful trust in God, and that's what, that's what he's dealing with. The whole summary of Abraham's life since his call from Ur of the Chaldees 
was a God-approved faithfulness in him. That's what's being talked about, not justification by personally believing. Because Abraham's faith wasn't even in Christ, it was in God, as Christ's faith was in God. In that whole passage. So again, in Romans 4, in an exegesis of Genesis chapters 12 through 22, Abraham's faithful trust in God, call it that if you want, was what God approved of. It was God-approved livingness, a God-approved way of being, a way of doing and knowing and thinking. In our case, in this dying phase of an old eon. The death blow on the Adamic ontology was dealt at Golgotha when the cross was planted in the brain of that skull, Golgotha Hill. The age that we're living in now is a dying phase of the Adamic ontology. That's why no one can find fulfillment in the Adamic ontology. Even, even if for a while they're wildly in love with somebody, they find out that doesn't fulfill them in the Adamic ontology. There's no fulfillment in the Adamic ontology at all. Now, if every saint in Rome lived that way in a faith that's evoked by the gospel, or had that be the principal source of their being and doing instead of by the law or by the not law, that is the reaction of the Gentiles to just blow off anything about the law, there would be harmonious unity and a base of operations for effective missionary enterprise. And Paul knew this. He's on the way to Spain. He wants to go through Rome first. He wants to be in fellowship with a community in unity before he goes on to the barbarians, as they were called, the savages in Spain. The Spanish savages, like the Scythian savages. We'll talk about that sometime soon, too. But look at Romans 4.4. 4. Now, to the one who works... Paul brings in a little different twist here. To the one who works, his pay is not calculated according to the principle of grace. A boss hires you, and at the end of the week, if you put in 40 hours and he watches you, or someone does, a foreman does, so you don't just punch in your time clock and go have a cigarette and a beer and watch porno like so many people do and get paid for it. I don't know how in the Hell, your conscience can take pay doing that. But that's a trend in some weird places, I guess. So you don't get paid for not working. The boss calculates your wages on the basis of the working that you accomplished, which would mean a lot of people today would get paid for about five hours of being at work for 40 hours. That's one thing my grandfather made me do. I mean, 40 hours, I worked 41 hours in 40 hours because it was always, he was always around or the principal of the school was always around where I worked or someone was around, my, a guy that worked for my grandfather above me. They were always around, so you were always working. 
So, man, did I love noon hours. You didn't have to work for an hour. And you appreciated it so much. And you ate like a pig because you worked so hard. And you burned off the calories anyways. That was the joy of working. Or the joy of the noon hour. After working. But Paul's saying to the one who's not working, but trusting in the one who justifies the ungodly. Notice what it says. Trusting in the one who justifies the ungodly. That's verse 5. Let's look at verse 4 again. To the one who works, his pay is not calculated according to the principle of grace. I don't know many bosses that say, well, you didn't do anything for 40 hours, but by grace I'm giving you the same paycheck as if you worked. No, that's not the principle. The one who is who works, his pay is not calculated according to the principle of grace, but of obligation. What Paul is likening that to is those who worked by the works of the law with the hope that God will be obliged to pay them approval, at least, or with life, or with approved livingness. The pay is rightly calculated according to the principle of grace, not according to the principle of grace, but of obligation. In other words, God would be obligated, and God is never obligated because God himself is free. God is free. You want to know a free person, it's God. God is love, and God is free, so he freely saves everybody in the world, and if you don't like it, you can lump it. He's free. He won't be obligated. So God would be obligated to approve of a livingness of works if that's what the approval came from. But God will not be obligated. He's free. And he freely justifies, according to Romans 3.24, or rectifies or sets right all who sinned in Romans 3.23 based on his justification of Jesus, as we're learning on Sunday mornings, Romans 3, 23 to 26. So look at Romans 4. But to the one who is not working, he's not doing the works of the law with the hope that God will be obliged to pay him wages, but trusting in the one who justifies the ungodly, his faithful trust is considered by God as rectified or as God-approved livingness. God approves of a livingness that has absolute implicit trust in God's ability to perform and God's ability to promise and fulfill. It is faith in the effective promise of God, and God's so happy and approves of that livingness That's what Paul's talking about here. This is not, listen carefully, this is not saying that one has to trust to be justified. But that trusting in the one who justifies the ungodly is God-approved livingness. Everything you do and think and say is around that. It comes from that. It derives from that. Faith is a gift that God evokes and gives to us and sustains in us, and we live by faith. We live by trust. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not to your own understanding is God-approved livingness, but we know 
that even that is a product of the Spirit whom God has given to us. For the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, and it's also faithfulness, meekness, gentleness, self-control, benevolence, kindness. Livingness that is works of any kind with the expectation of a payment from God. Or a reward from God. Is not approved by God. That's why people are going to be surprised when they do receive rewards. At the judgment seat. Because they will not have been working for rewards. They would have been living in the bliss of a God-approved livingness. And God says, you did this. And they say, when did I do that? You visited me when I was in prison. When did I do that? I don't remember doing that. Well, you did right here, 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 and here. Enter into the joy of your Lord. Enter into the blissfulness of your Lord. Not come into heaven instead of going to hell. The more I see that hell doctrine from a distance, the more I despise it. I hate it. Because it portrays a picture of my God as a monster. Jesus alone received the reward of life. Calculated on the basis of his faithfulness. Jesus alone received the reward of life from the dead. As a reward calculated on the basis of his faithfulness. For as the scripture says, my faithful, my righteous one will live by his faithfulness. By faithfulness. By faithfulness, his. All the rest of us are rewarded with the same life on the basis of Christ's faithfulness, otherwise known as grace. For us, the reward, we didn't work, and so God gave us a reward reckoned on the basis of grace which is reckoned on the basis of the faithfulness of Christ. That's why, pointing a little forward to Romans 4.16, it has to be grace if it's going to be in accord with faithfulness, Christ's faithfulness. If it's Christ's faithfulness by which he was rewarded with life, then it's grace that we're rewarded with life. We're the ones that didn't work. He's the one that finished the work. Remember the finished work? He did a work that he finished. He finished the work. His reward was reckoned on the basis of his faithful finishing of a work. Our reward is calculated on the basis of his faithfulness, and therefore we get the paycheck for somebody else who did the work. David hops on the train in a minute here. We're going to do that. I have to wait until tomorrow. I slowed down because this is very important that we understand this. Very important. And the spiritual life isn't even livable until God removes the stone. He removes the stony heart. I will remove the stony heart from their flesh. 
and give them a heart of flesh. And when God removed the stone from the tomb that held Jesus in there, that's when he removed the stone from your heart and from the hearts of mankind. John 20 and verse 1, Ezekiel 36, 26. Hints of things to come, hints that intrigue and wet the thirst, but don't necessarily quench it. Don't you love that? No, I don't, someone says. So we'll close by saying this. Before David hops on the train in 4-6, back to the Psalms, back to David, back to the one who is the royal king, whose descendant is the kingly Messiah, David describes the blessedness, the blissfulness. He describes the blissfulness of the man whom God considers to have rectitude or the man whom God approves apart from works. How blessed, he says, or David Bentley Hart's rightly said in his translation, how blissful are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered over, and that means under the cover of the mercy seat, which is Christ in Romans 3.25. How blessed is the man, now he says man here, not man or woman, because he's speaking about himself. How blessed is the man whose sin the Lord in no way takes into account. There's bliss there. But before we have David hop on this train, which we'll do maybe tomorrow night, maybe not. I might go to the other right flank suddenly and do the pincer. pincer. Surprise, surprise. Or as Brian said, Shazam. Gomer, will you marry me? Shazam! <laughs> Gomer... Gomer had a child named Jezreel, by the way, and that's a very important prophetic word. But in closing, this is not saying, again, that one has to have trust to be justified, but that trusting in the one who justifies the ungodly is a God-approved livingness. I walk around this life trusting in God who justifies ungodly people. And that in no way leads toward lawlessness at all. It's the opposite. If God is the kind of God that runs to meet the prodigal, then I want to know him. If he's the kind of God that dangles people over hell, like Jonathan Edwards said, like a spider over a flame, to hell with him. So livingness that is works of any kind with the expectation of payment by God is not approved by God. We're going all the way back, not just to the law of Moses, but to the prohibition given to Adam. So law deals with all of humanity from Adam onward. Anything, whether it's Mosaic law or some law or some Christian thing that you think you can do to gain some Make God obligated to pay you a reward is not God-approved livingness, and you'll find that it's not a very happy life to live either. God approves of his own act in you. God approves of his own action 
in you. It is God in you, both willing and doing that which he approves. God approves of his own act. His promise evoked faith in Abraham that became faithful trust throughout the rest of his life. Well, he had a deviation here and there, but he didn't stagger in unbelief and he gave glory to God because he lived not trying to attain God's payment through obligation, but through an implicit faithful trust in God's promise that in his seed, Christ, all the nations would be blessed. He lived around that. He lived through it. His way of being was that faith. So he was probably easy to be around. People that have that kind of faith are people that are easy to be around. So-called leaders, spiritual leaders that have this faith, like Jesus had it, are not difficult to be around and you feel like you're going to be convicted of sin around them and all that kind of stuff. It's, they're easy to be around because they have a blissful ease about them. And that's not to take away from the grief and the pain and the suffering that we go through. But this faith creates a way of being in this life that isn't carefree. The prayer life of this person is praying for the saints as apocalyptic warriors. Not that their hangnail will be healed so they can write faster. They pray for all the saints who are engaged in an apocalyptic eschatological warfare in which there are casualties, a life and death struggle. They pray for the saints on the front lines. They pray for all saints at all times. And that's not saying that we don't pray for people's health. We should and we do. We should pray for people in crisis, financial and otherwise, relationship and otherwise, injuries, yes, of course. But there are bigger issues at hand. So, Jesus alone received the reward of life calculated on the basis of faithfulness, his. All of humanity receives the reward calculated on the basis of grace. So remember in closing Peter's haunting words in Acts 15, 11, we believe that we Jews are saved by the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they, the Gentiles, are. Thank you, Father. Because I, I cannot help but think of these things that I thought of even this morning in my gratitude expressed to you. You have seen fit to grant us a look into the stars of the sky, not to see the literal stars of the celestial heaven, but you have allowed us to see a constellation of insights from your word, which inspire confidence in you. They inspire faith. They inspire a faith that works by love, which is the very rule that the Israel of God is to walk by, according to Galatians 5.6, in connection with 6.15. The most important connection that we will make so far in this series is the connection in Galatians between 5.6 and 6.16. For the Israel of God are the proleptic people that walk by a rule that is simply faithfulness working by love. Faithfulness as a participation 
in Jesus Christ's faithfulness, Jesus Christ who is the sum total of all that is truly Israel.